thankful hearts for what you have done, for what you are doing, and for what you're about to do. Our prayer this morning is that our own hearts, each one of us, would be open. We know your spirit is not silent. We know that you're speaking to us. Our prayer is, may our hearts be open and ready to receive what you have for us this day. Thank you for the gathering of believers here this morning. Thank you for what you're doing in the lives of each one of us. Uh, We give glory to you for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, I want to welcome you to a beautiful Sunday, a beautiful church surrounded by beautiful people who are problem-free and have no issues whatsoever. Yeah, we we saying, what did you have for breakfast this morning, Nathan? We know better. I found something recently as I was reading through, and um, this is from a book called Tell It to the Church by Ron Crable. They're talking, be talking about the church and controversy today. And uh, here's how I found something tongue-in-cheek. Uh, how to turn a disagreement into a feud. How to escalate a disagreement. The top eight ways to do this. Be sure, here's number one, as if we need to know how. Uh, be sure to develop and maintain a healthy fear of conflict. Letting your own feelings build up so you are in an explosive frame of mind. Here's another way. Here's second way. How to escalate a disagreement. If you must state your concerns, be as vague and general as possible. Then the other person cannot do anything practical to change the situation. Third, assume you know all the facts and you're totally right. The use of a clinching Bible verse is especially helpful. And do most of the talking. Fourth, with a touch of defiance, announce your willingness to talk with anyone who wishes to discuss the problem with you. But don't take steps to initiate such a conversation. Uh, fifth, latch tenaciously onto whatever evidence, evidence you can find that shows the other person is merely jealous of you. Uh, sixth, judge the motivation of the other party on any previous experience that showed failure and, or unkindness and keep track of any angry words. Seventh, if the discussion should become serious, View the struggle as a win-lose situation. Avoid possible solutions and go for total victory and unconditional surrender. And lastly, pass the buck. There you go. If you're about to get cornered into a solution, indicate you're without power to settle and be sure to shift the blame to someone else. Now we smile at those and those are ways most certainly, you've probably been, in fact, on the receiving end, maybe, or maybe you've been the perpetrator. But either way, some familiar things in there. They ring true. They ring true to the fact that, yes, that will indeed escalate a a disagreement into a feud. Well, we've heard probably first this morning, we're going to be talking about the church and controversy. I know there's... uh, Two types of people, well, there's more than two types of people, but there's two types of people. Some people say, oh, good, this is a point at which uh, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I like controversy. Uh, no problem. Then there's others who as soon as saw that word conflict, this little knot got in their stomachs, and they're ready to slink out the back door. And then there's many in between. But each of us responds in a different way to what we hear about conflict. Our study in Acts is from chapter 15. If you have your Bibles open to that this morning, 
Acts chapter 15 because there was a controversy in the early church. And if you remember, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, uh, kind of pulling from it different principles that we can learn about church, doing church. And we want to learn about that, understand that, and what that has to mean, what that means uh, to us today. And again, remember, this is a transitional period, the book of Acts, the birth of the church early on. And as we look at various things in the book of Acts, we understand that this is illustrative. This is an illustration of the early church, not meant to be instructive. Instruction takes place later on as we review and look through the, the books of First, Second Timothy and Titus and Corinthians and so forth, that's instruction. This is illustration. But there are some very good things to learn from the book of Acts. Um, again, in no way possible. It is impossible. In fact, just to, even though we're looking at one chapter today, there's so much in there. I wish we could spend it verse by verse, but we're going to do an overview of the whole chapter. And so we'll be skipping over some things and pulling a few things out, not doing a comprehensive look at at uh, Acts chapter 15, nor will we deal comprehensively with the topic of conflict. Uh, believe me, as we study and as we review it, as, as, I, as I do this, as I, there's no way. There's so much, so much to learn, but we will at least pull some principles out. As you're reading, you're probably thinking, oh, there's something else. That's good. That's God's Spirit speaking to you. Listen, uh, because there's so much in the book of Acts that we can learn about this. Um, first, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the need for each of us uh, we each have a personal responsibility for personal holiness and a close walk with God. Not to make us better individuals, but so that each of us are contributing in a spirit-filled way so that the body of Christ brings glory to God. Last week we looked at the life of Stephen uh, from Acts chapter 6 and 7 and the intensity with which he lived his life. Just a short portion of his life that we saw in the book of uh, in uh, Acts chapter 7. And just the intensity, how he approached life. And we talked about how a team approaches uh, a game with playoff intensity as opposed to a preseason or, or um, a regular season. All of a sudden a team gets into the playoffs and the intensity. And because the reason for that was the persecution in the church. And how Stephen, not, not knowing when his last day on earth would be, he still lived his life as if it were his last day. And you think about that. You think about that. We don't know how long God has each one of us here on this earth. We don't know how many more days he has. Somewhere on some calendar, somewhere, there's a day circled. The day that we'll both be home with him. We don't know when that is. But think about living each day as if that circled day is tomorrow. What kind of intensity do we approach our Christian life with? Is it just preseason, regular season? Or is it playoff intensity? This day is going to mean something for eternity. And that's, we saw how, how Stephen did that. Uh, that was the church adverse, adversity. Uh, the problems came from outside the church. Today we're going to talk about the church and controversy and some of the issues that came inside the church. And Acts chapter 15 is a great illustration of that. Now, some background catching us up to Acts chapter 15. After Stephen's death in Acts chapter 8, uh, the, the believers were dispersed all over the place. You remember Philip going to, and speaking with the Ethiopian eunuch and so on? After that, in chapter 9, that's when Saul, the person we met in chapter 8, is converted on the road to Damascus. 
Following that, in Acts chapter 10, it shifts back to Peter and the vision that he had of, uh, of this sheep being let down from heaven and these animals on it, and a voice telling him, go eat those animals. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm Jewish, you don't understand, and they're not kosher, I can't eat them. And three times it came down, and then the knock on the door after that vision was Cornelius, a non-Jew. And the light came on to Peter. Oh, this gospel message is not just for Jews. That's why we had the vision. He's right. So this, this, all of a sudden the gospel is being spread. This, this message of the Messiah coming, it wasn't just for Jews. It was for non-Jews as well. And then Acts chapter 11, uh, Barnabas and Saul, already off on a missions journey, go to Antioch where they preach to non-Jews. And many of those Gentiles, as we call them, came to know Christ. Amazing thing for the Jewish believers at that time. And then in chapter 12, we're still catching up here, 15. Chapter 12, um, James is killed by Herod. James was uh, John's brother. Remember uh, James and John, called them the sons of thunder. Uh, Significantly here, Peter, James, and John frequently in the Gospels, that James was beheaded by Herod, and then Peter was arrested. Everybody thought that's it for him too, but no. Peter was rescued by the angel, walked out of jail uh, safely. And then catching up to uh, chapters 13 and 14, Barnabas and Saul go on a missions trip, to a short-term trip to Galatia, to Syria, and again reaching non-Jews, Gentiles, for Christ. Chapter 15 brings them back to Antioch, and that's where we land today. I'm going to be reading through chapter 15, verse by verse, and stopping and making comments along the way, and hopefully being able to apply some of these to us today. Acts chapter 15, let me read verses 1 and 2. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. These individuals were saying we're not necessarily opposed to these non-Jews, these Gentiles receiving the gospel. That's we're with you there. However, we think that they should keep the same laws that we do. Now, understand this wasn't just something that was good tradition. Okay? These individuals, good-hearted, they meant well. They really sincerely believed this, not just because of tradition, but because for thousands of years, this had been a way of life. Now, you and I have traditions. Maybe you have, I don't know if you have family traditions that you do, and especially around the holidays, there's certain things that are expected because that's the way you've always done them. They're traditions. They're good to have. I know in our family, we have traditions with, you know, as we've, as we've raised our, our three children and and uh, done specific things at specific times during the years, they've come to expect that. And you think that's only, what, 23 years of, of raising children that we have done, and that has become just an entrenched tradition just in that short amount of time. We're talking thousands of years, not just tradition. It was a way of life for the Jewish people. These laws were their salvation. These laws were what the prophets prophesied about and said, if you don't keep these laws... God will be displeased with you. And so these Jewish believers were thinking, my goodness, these Gentiles are coming and they're not kosher and they're not keeping the dietary laws. They're not doing all these other things. They can't possibly be pleasing God. So, so we're trying to give them a little credit here. 
I mean, it sounds terrible what they're saying because we know better today. They didn't. And here they were coming to Paul, um, to the uh, believers there that came up from Jerusalem to Antioch and told them, you've got to follow the laws that Jewish believers do. Well, the decision was made. Let's do something about this. Good thing to do. Not let it sit, not sweep it under the rug. We're going to solve this. Uh, Verse 3. The church sent them on their way. Now, this is the church in Antioch, the gathering of believers in Antioch, sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. Here they were traveling from Antioch, heading south toward Jerusalem. It says up to Jerusalem because the elevation went up. And as they did, they passed through two Gentile areas, teaching the same thing, preaching the same thing. The gospel is for everyone, uh, by grace through faith alone. And the brothers were glad. They were glad to hear this. Arrived in Jerusalem, and here's the report, verse 4. They came to Jerusalem, and they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. This was their uh, post-short-term trip report. We always have to have those. They had those then. And they were reporting to the church what God had done through them in the lives of the Gentiles. And everybody's, in some cases, hearing for the first time, they're just amazed. Wow, this is something. God is revealing himself not just through the Jews, but through the Gentiles as well. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Here it is. Uh, The reason they came. It is the firm conviction of some of the Jewish believers that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, should basically convert to Judaism. They stood up and made their statement. This is what we believe. This is why we came. Verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So the elders listened, and the apostles listened, and came together and said, let's meet, let's consider what... So they probably met separately, uh, aside from everyone, to discuss and probably pray about uh, the issue before them. Verse 7, after much discussion, uh, Peter, and this is probably still in that separate meeting, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago... God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke? that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter reveals his his, uh, conflict management style here. He speaks first, as he often does. And he's very clear about what his position is. He tells them straight out, this is an unnecessary yoke that we're putting on the necks of these believers. They don't need this. And his very emphatic, verse 11, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It's the same Holy Spirit that was given them. Remember, this is Peter referencing as well the point at which 
uh, Cornelius, the non-Jew, came to him. And that is vivid in Peter's mind because that was a vision that came down and immediately after that is when Cornelius knocked on his door. He doesn't forget that. And he's saying, folks, let me tell you something. I know, I know that this message is for non-Jews as well as Jews. He had that experience. He knows clearly that it was God talking to him. And so he said, it must be. It must be for, for them as well. It's the same Holy Spirit that was given them. Verse 12. In the argument, here's exhibit A. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. This is the way God chose to authenticate his will at that time. It was through the signs and wonders. And they had seen that in the Jews. But then all of a sudden it was, it was the non-Jews, the Gentiles as well. And that's what astonished them. And it was God's way of authenticating his will to them. Today we have scripture. And we, can very, we know very clearly what his will for us is. All we have to do is go to scripture and study. And quite frankly, the more that we understand and the more that we are digging deeply into Scripture, the more we understand His will. I think it's too many times, uh, you and I, and I put myself in that same category, sometimes we drift. We just kind of wonder, I wonder if this is what God wants for me or for us. And He's revealed what He wants for us. It's in His Word. And as we spend that time in prayer and studying His Word and fellowship with other believers listening for God's voice then we can know it's not a God who is silent sometimes we hear of what God did back in in Old Testament or New Testament times and we think why is God silent today he's not silent today he speaks to us it's our ears sometimes that are stopped up and there's so many things crowding it out either we are stubborn and we're saying talk to the hand we're so busy with so many other things we just don't have time, but we're not hearing him. He does speak, just as he spoke back then. Well, here we have in chapter, uh, verse 13, someone else speaks up. When they finished, after listening to Barnabas and Paul give their report about their missions trip, when they finished, James spoke up. Now, this James, obviously, is not the James we were talking about earlier. He was beheaded. This James is most likely the half-brother of Jesus who came to believe in the Messiah after Jesus' death. So this James was a well-respected leader in the church there in Jerusalem. He's well-written of by extra-biblical writers as well as a very devout, devout Jew and a Christ follower and considered one of the apostles. So this James spoke up, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, meaning Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment 
that we should not make it difficult for the angels, for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. James' proposed resolution. Let's bring this to resolution. First, he said there's no question that God is drawing Gentiles to himself. We can agree on that. Secondly, he used scripture. And just throw his opinion out there. He quoted from the book of Amos, where Amos predicts that in the end times, yet to come, that God would be drawing all nations, ethne is the word in there, all nations to him. So if God is going to be doing that, then it indeed follows that these individuals who are coming to know Christ, that's true of them. He is drawing them. And he points at scriptures, not just throwing his opinion out there, but he points at, at scripture to say that. It's entirely within his will. And he says, we should not make it difficult. This is very close to what Peter said. Let's not make it difficult for them. Why do this to them? Same thing Peter said about putting a yoke on the necks of Christ's followers. So James recommends four guidelines in here. Three dietary laws and one moral judgment. Now why these? A lot of speculation on that. Most likely had to do something with what was taking place in Antioch at that time. Now, again, it's speculation, but there's, there's three there that have to do with dietary laws as far as keeping the meat kosher. Uh, you don't eat meat uh, with, with the blood still in it. Uh, that was part of the kosher, uh, kosher laws uh, of the Jewish. Says, we can do that. And also one absolute, and that is abstain from sexual immorality. Now, it's quite possible that as Jews and Gentiles gathered together, they would eat together. And it's important, maybe James felt, again, speculation, maybe James felt that it was important that there not be a division there especially. So he's telling the Gentile believers, follow the kosher laws, in this case, in Antioch, and abstain from sexual immorality. The point was, we're not going to hold Gentile to the same Jewish laws since it is by God's grace that we are saved. He's, mainly, he's saying, keep the main thing the main thing. Let's remember, let's focus. Good thing for us to remember. I think there are issues in the church on which we can, or in some cases must, compromise. And this sounds dangerous here. You're saying, you're saying that James was compromising? Well, yeah, in a way, yes. And there are issues in our church today. Think of um, preferences like music style, building decor, Business procedures. Those are issues on which we can compromise. There are other issues on which we cannot compromise. Sexual immorality. Salvation by grace through faith alone. The concession, this concession or compromise was not about salvation. It was about fellowship. Now get this. Please get this. Distinguishing between these issues is done only through the faithful study Interpretation and application of God's word by spirit-filled believers. Can I repeat that? Distinguishing between his issues is done only through the faithful study, interpretation, and application of God's word by spirit-filled believers. Don't try it any other way. Please. Because that's what brings about conflict. 
Not to say that this would be just completely make, wipe it all out and everybody's happy. No, it will take work. Believe me, it does. But it's so necessary that we're each spirit-filled and following God's word. And interesting how James did this. Notice he didn't take a vote. Voting is a, is a 20th century, 21st century thing that we do here in America. It's not in the Bible. Uh, not to say that we shouldn't. That's, we can vote on things. But he didn't. He brought about by consensus. And just, just a, a side note, if I might, interesting, in, in recent memory, uh, we on the Elder Council, and, and uh, they might correct me afterwards, but I, in recent memory, uh, all of our decisions that we've come to has, has been consensus. Um, and it's, and it's, <laughs> it's harder that way. It'd be easier just to say, let's vote. But as we work through issues, tough, tough issues, we trust God to bring us to a point where he's leading us in the same direction. And you know, that might change in the future. I don't know because it's written in our Constitution that indeed we can vote. But as we have met together as brothers and as we have dealt with some of these hard issues, uh, we've come together and uh, come together in a consensus. Now this same James wrote a letter uh, to his to the uh, church scattered throughout all the nations. is a letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. We know it as the book of James. And James had a very direct way of writing. In chapter 4, 1 through 10, he addresses conflict. He tells them very directly. He puts them on blast. Learned that this week. He worked with college students, you have to be bilingual. He puts them on blast. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Let me read some of this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you, don't, what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Drop down to seven. Here's the answer. He doesn't just, he doesn't just uh, put them on blast. He tells them, here's the answer. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee, to, flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here it is, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. See, I think what he's saying here is that conflict often is the result of putting self first. What we need to do is humble ourselves before God. Verse 22 of back in Acts chapter 15. uh, Verse 22, the delegation is sent. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the people, among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter. Here's the letter, verses 23 through 29, written to the believers there in Antioch. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed 
to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Unanimous decision on the part of the apostles and elders and the church in Antioch. Let's not put this yoke on them. Let them understand that their salvation is not dependent on eating kosher food or eating or doing this or doing that. It's dependent on it by grace through faith alone. Well, verse 30, the response. You kind of wonder, you get a letter like this, uh, well, we know the rest of the story, but you wonder, uh, how did they respond to this? All of a sudden, here's a list of things that the apostles and elders wanted them to do. Well, look at this. They were encouraged. Verse 30. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. Verse 31. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. Didn't say, no, they're trying to control us. They were encouraged. This is something that they could follow. This is something that they could agree upon. I think it tells us this. The church can survive and thrive in spite of controversy and conflict. Here was something that the early church handled, and handled well. And it tells us something. It illustrates for us that indeed a church, any church, any assembly of believers can survive and even thrive in the midst of controversy. See, at least for me, this one another stuff, loving one another, it's hard work. But to be that pure bride for the bridegroom, to glorify God, to serve as a shining testimony to the world, I can choose to put self aside, taking up my cross daily and following him. And we know we can do that. I think the question for us is, are we willing? That's something between us and God we have to understand, are we willing? And asking him, am I willing? Let's move on, verses uh, 36 to the end of the chapter, because that controversy is over. However, another one appears at the end of chapter 15. Uh, This is verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Interesting episode. Barnabas says, let's keep John Mark with us. And Paul said, no, don't you remember? This is back in chapter 10, verse 10. uh, John Mark left them at one point, on their short-term trip. And Paul is saying, no, it's not worth the risk. And here you've got two very different people. You have Barnabas, 
Um, in fact, we've, we met Barnabas back in chapter 4, verse 36, and it's, he's called the son of encouragement. He was an encourager. He liked to come alongside people. God had gifted him that way. In fact, um, Barnabas was the one who came alongside Saul when the rest of the church in Jerusalem didn't trust him. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, when he, Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. See, Barnabas' heart for people had a heart for people, and he didn't want to turn down a person that he felt God could use, even though that person might have faults. Good trait. Honorable trait. Paul, on the other hand, wanted to make sure that the mission will not be compromised in any way by taking a risk like this. Good trait. Honorable trait. Who's right? It's not the right question. See, sometimes these things come up and it's not clear, and it isn't from Scripture either. Luke does not offer any commentary on this as far as tipping his hand one way or the other. Here was a controversy, so much so that the team split. See, both had the same focus, building God's kingdom, but each had their own way of seeing how it should be done. Now, this doesn't have, like I said, the happy resolution we saw in the story that Luke related earlier. And the reality is, all stories don't end the way we'd like them to. Many commentators, I'll tell you what, as many commentaries you read, you get a number of different takes on this story. Here's one by Ajith Fernando. I think I quoted him last week. He says, This conflict is an exception brought about by human error rather than by divine design. See, that it's the people that Luke writes about, they're human. And you can imagine, maybe, I don't know if Luke was in the middle of this or not, maybe he's sitting right between them as they're going back and forth, I don't know. Uh, but they're human. And it happens. However, God is sovereign. We have to believe that. God is sovereign. And in this case, it ended up with them doubling their efforts because Barnabas took John Mark with him and they headed to Cyprus. Paul and Silas took off for Cilicia and Galatia uh, Galatia and Syria. In fact, later on we find Silas and Mark mentioned significantly in the epistles and it is Mark that Paul asks for in his last letter to Timothy. So God uses it. God is sovereign. And even though we see something in here that looks like in our minds was not resolved, God was bigger than that. He was bigger than that. He could take care of things. I think sometimes we wanted, we wanted everything neatly tied up exactly like we think it ought to be. And that's our human minds attempting to do that. God says, no, I'm sovereign. I think it's humbling to realize that if God used only perfect people in his church, you and I would be left out as with the rest of the world. We need to get away from the idea that a healthy church must be a conflict-free church. It's not the case. Healthy church is one that consistently and biblically seeks to resolve conflict with the end result being God's glory. Doesn't mean we always get our own way. Doesn't mean we always feel that warm fuzzies and put our arms around each other and sing kumbaya. It doesn't always happen that way. 
And we're not seeking unity for the sake of unity. See, I think sometimes we get that messed up. Sometimes we even say that mistakenly, saying the goal is unity. No, 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 no. That's a good objective. The goal is to glorify God. A unified church glorifies God. See, it's not just unity. I mean, you can be unified about anything. You know, 60,000 fans in in, uh, Soldier Field, field, they're unified around the Bears winning. That's good. Uh, We're not talking about that. We're talking about glorifying God. That's what we need to be unified around. The goal is to glorify God, and to that end, we can be unified. Uh, one of the, I think, I just, I want to touch on one verse from, I know we read from Ephesians earlier and uh, running out of time already, but I, I, do want to, I do want to take the time to touch on one verse in, in the Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to flip over there, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. And the reason I want to talk about this verse is because so often as we attempt to deal with conflict in our own misguided way, we have a misunderstanding of how God would have us do that. Sometimes, like I said, some of us roll up our sleeves and we're ready to, yeah, we'll dive right in there. Show me the person. Others would just rather put our coats over our heads and slink out the back door. We all deal with conflict in different ways. I think sometimes, if I could say, this is, now this is not a, a, an empirical study. I did not do a survey on this, but I can tell you this. Often, within a church, and not just our church, but any church, one of the most frequent things that we come up against is individuals who have issues with one another, and that's conflict, and that's, that's part of being human. However, too many times we want to take that issue to someone else instead of the person with whom we have the issue. That's human nature. It's also wrong. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, one of the most significant guidelines. He says, speaking the truth in love is how we approach others. Speaking the truth in love. In love. Too often, and we've heard this before, too often we take one or the other and we favor either the truth or the love. Can't have either or, must be both and. Speaking the truth in love. Too often our motivation is to set that person straight or communicate our view or what we perceive to be unrighteous behavior in the other person. Loving must come first. If we can't do it in love, please don't attempt to try to speak the truth. They must be together. Loving the person means I will agree to seek God's best for that person, being willing to put aside my own agenda. Loving the person means sometimes there will be tears in my eyes when I talk to the person who is stubbornly resistant to God's will. Loving the person first means I'm sometimes silenced by God's Spirit and I'm compelled to pray for that person instead. Loving the person first means I'm willing to simply speak the truth that God has laid on my heart, leaving the results completely up to Him. Too often, we have individuals coming to us or maybe to you and saying, you have a problem with so-and-so or this thing came up and this thing came up. And the first questions that will come back from us, and I know that we have elders have talked about this numbers of times, is, have you talked to that person yet? And if the answer is no, why are you talking to us? And that's a response. And that's not a cold response, folks. That's not a cold response. It's a biblical response. 
And something that you can say. It's not just up to the elders to say. That's something you can say as well. Encourage it, in fact. Because there are sticky issues. Always. It's because we're human. And because we love each other. And if we do that, there's going to be issues. And when there are issues, and it is with somebody, you go to that person. You don't go to somebody else and say, about this, or like this. Can I share a prayer request with you? No. No. I don't want that. If they have an issue with a person, go to that person. And you know what? Sometimes you say, well, I do, but it just doesn't turn out the way I want it to. I've been there. I know what you mean. But we still have to be obedient to Scripture. Speak the truth in love. Make sure it is love that is a motivating factor that is driving that. Well, some people today would rather have Christ without having to deal with his church. Much easier, right? But you can't have the head without the body. It's God designed for us to need one another. It's not a popular in America today. See, we're built on independence, and that's a good thing, but that's our culture, is independence. Scripture always trumps culture. Get that. Scripture always trumps culture. In the church, independence, no. We need each other. That's how God made us. Years ago, our family had the opportunity to go to uh, California and to see the redwood trees. I don't know if anybody has ever seen that area. Beautiful, beautiful trees. I had never seen trees that tall before in my life, and I stood there like a tourist. Like sometimes you see down, downtown when you see the tourists, they stand below the Sears Tower and just go, hi, that. Okay. That's what we were doing with these redwood trees because it was a tree that goes up almost 300 feet, 30 stories up. Massive. And you can see all the way up in the branches just stood there in awe of what God had created. And as I was reading about these, um, understood that you, you think with all the storms, especially that come through California, all that wind and everything, these trees were just look, almost like a pencil sticking to the ground in some cases. You think that the roots then, if that's 30 stories, that must be at least 30 stories going down. They aren't. They have very shallow root systems, sometimes only 30 feet deep, to hold up this huge tree. And all these winds come through and everything comes through. How, does they, how do they stand up? You know how they stand up? The trees are all together and their roots underneath are intertwined. And when the winds come, they're there together. Some of us would rather be individualistic. Don't. You need each other. We need each other. Underneath, in our spiritual lives, we're intertwined. That's God's design for us. In the book, Making Peace, the author says, you're facing conflict? <laughs> he says, the church is the place God would have you reconcile. Don't run. The church is the place. I think the number one obstacle to this is pride. The only way to erode that is a determined, growing understanding and commitment to and practice of Submission to Christ. Some of you here might be listening to today and never understood what it means to be part of the family of God. Some of you might be listening and saying, I, I don't understand what that commitment is, how it can be intertwined. 
Let me tell you something. The most significant decision you could possibly make in your entire life is that of coming to Christ by faith, by grace through faith. Having an understanding that nothing, nothing that you can do could possibly make you good enough for God. It is only through Christ. And trusting Him as your personal Savior is the first step to developing that root system with brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you have not made that decision today, please, please come to that point of saying, I don't know, I don't understand at all, all of it, but that's okay. I want to know Christ. Now, as we listened to the song earlier, as Eric sang, it struck me, do we have any understanding of how deeply it grieves God when we claim to love his son yet fail to love his children? Do we understand what joy it brings to his heart when we love his children? Do we claim to love Jesus? Love his church. You cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love my church. Bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for teaching us, for loving us, for putting up with us as human beings beyond our understanding at times. We love you. We love your people. Teach us how to make that happen in a practical, day-to-day way. Drive us back to your word in prayer, understanding your Holy Spirit and what you have to teach us. Thank you again for gathering us here this day, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.